Well, it is great to be with you all um, again, and what a wonderful way to, to start the day with, with the baptism and, and, and the evidence of a changed life. And so uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 6, um, as Stephen pointed out a couple uh, moments ago. And so in my role, one of the things I get to do is see different things all over the state, especially uh, related to missions and uh, uh, helping churches uh, get on mission uh, anew or find new ways to be uh, in the mission of God. And so one of the things that, that you as a, a church that cooperates with the Baptist Convention in New Mexico have, uh, are doing is to support a guy named Eric Tiger. And so Eric Tiger is actually a Native American guy. He's actually from Oklahoma, but he's here in New Mexico and he is working towards getting the gospel out on our Pueblos. And so I don't know uh, how much you know about the Pueblos. The Pueblos are less than 2% evangelical, and we have 19 of them here in, in uh, New Mexico. Uh, my wife and I and our kids took off to Zuni Pueblo about two weeks ago, because we just, I said, I'm going to hit every Pueblo in the next two years. And so we're just going to go out there and see what this is like. And it was pretty fascinating, because we got to go to the middle part of that village, where there is a building that you can enter in and apparently go down 60 feet down where the heart of Mother, Mother Earth resides, and it's still beating to this day. And uh, this guy was telling me about this, and I just was amazed at the worldview of, of this people group. And so we had a fabulous time being there. I got to meet one of their kahiks, one of their religious leaders, and I've got an invitation to go on a hike with him out in the Zuni Pueblo, up on the uh, uh, Pueblo Mesa, where they think, uh, where they believe, and I guess they did, in 1680, they escaped uh, from the Spaniards coming in after the Pueblo Revolt. And so they went up there, and so there's ruins on top of of that Mesa, and he is one of the leaders of that entire city, and I'm going to have an opportunity to go hike with him for about two or three hours in September and see how much of Jesus that I can share uh, with him while we're up there, and, and uh, hopefully he won't leave me on top of that thing. I'll be able to come back home, so you need to be praying for that. Um, but Eric, uh, his job is to help reach out to the Pueblos and have an opportunity to connect with people that can take the gospel back to the Puebloan people. And so I just want to ask you to, to pray for Eric, because this week he met with the governor of one of the Pueblos, who is in turn going to get him in front of all the rest of the governors of the Pueblos sometime later this year. And so we're just praying that God's going to soften hearts and open up opportunities. But that can't happen if churches like First West Albuquerque um, don't partner together to, to help be a part of that. So we're an extension of, of your ministry. So thank you for, for that. So in, here in Isaiah chapter 6, um, I don't know about you, there's only probably been a few times in my life when I've really just sensed the glory and the weight of who God is. Um, and oftentimes those times have been out in uh, nature. And so I don't know if you've ever hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon or flown over the Grand Canyon or stood at the Grand Canyon or walked out on that crazy glass thing at the Grand Canyon. Um, but anyway, I hiked to the bottom of that a couple of years ago with my son. We camped down there and saw the waterfalls down there, which was just amazing. It's just gorgeous um, down there. But that was one of the times where I just thought, wow, God, you are big. 
There's been other times I've been in an airplane flying over Iceland or flying over the Alps or flying over one of the oceans or, you know, uh, being in the middle of a thunderstorm, a lightning storm and seeing lightning not only going down from the clouds, but up from the clouds and sideways. And that'll make you feel really good when you're, you know, flying in a big metal tube uh, 30,000 feet up in the, in the air. And so the glory of God is on display everywhere. So this morning, we've already had an opportunity to sing about how great our God is. This morning, what I want us to do is look at a passage that I've never preached on, but I've read it lots of different times. And God gave me the full weight of this passage this week as I looked at this. And I'd love for you to dive in with me. And so let's jump in here to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts or armies. And then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? Let's ask the Lord to just speak to us this morning. God, as we have gathered in here and have seen uh, your glory, a glimpse of it in the, the, the life of, of a changed uh, person in, in Abbey, Lord, we thank you for uh, being involved and working in our lives and being here in our world, God, to, to uh, change us and restore us. And yet, Lord, sometimes we get so familiar with who you are and we forget that you are a mighty, glorious, awesome, powerful, wonderful God. And so this morning, as we just look at your text, would you show us anew, God, your glory? We would ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, God fills heaven and earth with his glory. He fills all of heaven and earth with his glory. Here in verse 1, he points out the fact that Uzziah died. We know that happened somewhere around 740 B.C. And Uzziah was basically a good king. He did some very good things. In fact, um, he we can read from Chronicles, he sought God is what the scripture says. He sought the Lord. He defeated the Philistines. He was trying to take care of his people there in the promised land. He secured the walls and the gates around Jerusalem. And then he had a well-trained army. And guys, you'll love this. He put catapults on the walls. (laughs) What a cool king, right? Flinging rocks at people, at the bad guys. And so this king was a guy who sought the Lord and took care of his people. He was a good king until the last few years of his life. And he went into the temple and because he started to get puffed up with pride, the scripture says, he went in and he decided he was going to offer a sacrifice, which was something that was reserved for the priests. 
And he did, and they called him out on it, and he got angry, and he yelled at them, and he immediately became leprous. And that's how he spent the rest of his life. You see, in that same year that King Uzziah died, Romulus was born that year, who was one of the founders of Rome, which is really kind of interesting because later on, um, this because Israel, both kingdoms at this time, were in this downward spiral. Uzziah was really the last great king, especially of the southern um, kingdom. And so Assyria and Babylonia and Persia and Greece and Rome were all going to come and kind of kick tail on the Israelites over the next several hundred years. And so it's kind of ironic that Romulus was born in the same year that Uzziah died. So can you begin to feel the weight of the fact that there's a good king who's been trying to seek the Lord and do good things for his people, and then he dies, and you don't know what's going to happen next. Now, his son wound up being a pretty good king and sought the Lord, but it really kind of started to go downhill from there. And so God calls Isaiah to come and preach to um, Jerusalem. And so verse 1, check this out. He sees the Lord, and it's this vision, really, and he sees God in the heavenly temple, okay? So he sees this vision that God gives him, and it says he's high, and he's lifted up. He's in this high position, and in fact, the whole hem or train of his robe is so long that it fills the entire temple. That would be kind of like a bride coming in here to get married, and her train filling and wrapping around the entire room. Just showing the importance and his train, the, the train, the hem of his robe filled the entire heavenly temple. And so in verse 2, we see that there's these beings that are there, and, and they're the seraphim. They're standing there, and this word in the original language for seraphim actually means fiery ones. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Just the fiery ones. Here they are. The only other time that that's really, that, that's talked about seraphim in the Bible is in Revelation 4.8. When they're there in, in another vision. So they, interestingly enough, they might have looked like dragons. Because the word for seraphim actually also can mean serpent. So this isn't the happy, you know, strumming angels that are hanging out behind God with baby fat faces that are kind of just hanging out, having a good time. These are fiery dragons that look scary and they've got these wings. You know, obviously they're flying with two of them, but they're covering their faces because God's glory is so powerful. Even though they're sinless beings in the face of God, they can't look at him. They've got to hide their faces. And so they're flying, the scripture says, and because God's glory is there, this must be an amazing Amazing scene in this vision. Verse 3, look at what they're doing though. They're calling out, maybe singing to each other, holy, holy, holy. That means complete holiness, right? I mean, it's not just holy once, it's complete. He's um, spelling this out and that's why they're calling out three times. It's um, calling out to God and, and, or to one another and talking about who he is and then they're talking about that he is the Lord of hosts. Now, in the new um, Southern Baptist version of the Bible, I guess is what they call it, the Christian Standard Bible, okay? If you got the HCSB, that's the hardcore Southern Baptist Bible. <laughs> but this one's the CSB. It's not quite as hardcore, but it's... Anyway, I, I do like this translation. But in this translation, they use the word armies there. So yours, if you got the NIV, it probably used the word Lord Almighty. If you have an ESV or another version, it probably uses the word... 
word, um, the Lord of hosts. Okay. So in here, that's all meaning the same thing. It's really a military term. They're singing about their commander. That's what's going on here. They're singing about the one who has created them into being. He's a mighty, holy, awesome, powerful God. And they're singing to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the commander, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And that's who they're singing about and talking about. Verse 3, his glory fills the whole earth. We know Psalm 72 said that the fullness of the whole earth is his glory. And then look what happens in verse 4. Because of their great voices, the foundations of the doorways shook. Now, some of you guys don't like the music very loud. And I'm guessing that if Danny cranked it up so that the doorways shook, some of you wouldn't be back next Sunday. But there's something that's going on here. There's no crazy bass amps or, you know, sound system to turn up loud enough to make the neighbors wonder what's happening in that church. But in this great vision, because of their great voices and who they are and the mightiness that God has made them and the splendor that they are showing of who God is because of their great voices, the foundations, the doorways shook. And smoke fills the temple. And usually that's because you're not supposed to see God's presence when the spirit shows up and his glory is there. We've seen that all throughout scripture. Now, um, how many of you have ever been to a David Crowder um, concert? Okay, how many of you know who David Crowder is? You like his milk? Say, so forgiven. I heard that all the way here. It's probably one of my favorite songs, really, that, that's out right now. What a wonderful song. I've been uh, to a David Crowder concert twice. The most recent one was in Nashville. We were there at the Bridgestone Center, and um, it was so loud, and I'm, I'm aging myself, I understand that, but it was so loud, I pulled out my phone and got the decibel meter out, because I was like, okay, I just want to know how loud this thing really is, and I had to walk out um, into the foyer, because it was just loud, but it was wonderful, wonderful time of worship. Now, the other time I was in a David Crowder concert, I was at a big youth specialties retreat, all for youth ministers. We were on the third floor of a building, a hotel in downtown Dallas, and it got bumping. I mean, the place was happening, and, you know, he was experimenting with some things at that time, so there was a DJ back there doing some things, and, you know, the bass was going, and and then people kind of started moving, and I thought I felt the floor move. And I was right because later I was talking to one of the people who works there for the hotel and he told me, he said, now this is interesting. He said, we built um, the engineers when they built this hotel, they built it so that the floor was actually kind of on shocks and it would move. And he said, but we'd never seen it happen until y'all showed up. I was like, there you go, right? It's worship. This place is rocking. It's moving. I didn't see, you know, doors falling down or any of those things. But I'm just telling you, that foundation of that place was shaken. But can you imagine what it would be like to be in a worship service where there are these seraphim fiery beings who look like dragons yelling and calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, the Lord of hosts, and the building is shaking. We wouldn't know what to do. And so that's what's taking place in this place. God's glory fills heaven and earth. But if we really saw God in his holiness, we'd be overwhelmed. We wouldn't know what to do. God is holy. He's awesome. Can you imagine being in his presence when his train filled this whole room and there was smoke in here? Most of us would be like, man, that is not Baptist. That can't be happening. There's got to be something in the scripture against this. 
So powerful beings are singing. The room shakes. God is completely other. He's perfect in purity. Listen to the words of this old hymn. And I know you know this hymn very well. Um, but holy, holy, holy says this. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And then it goes on, all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. And then verse three, or ch- um, through the dark, though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy. There's none beside thee, perfect in power, love, and purity. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. What a wonderful hymn. Don't you feel something? Don't you understand something about God when we sing that song together? The music and the lyrics just come together and it's something that helps us understand a little bit of who God is with his glory. But here's my worry, church. We've lost the biblical doctrine of the holiness of God. His glory should make us gasp. So look at what happened to Isaiah because of this experience in the vision. In verse 5, it says that he said, whoa. Let's just stop right there. The word woe is a word of grief or despair. It even means fear from death. He goes on, he says in verse 5, I'm ruined which means destroyed or ceased. In fact, later on, Isaiah uses that exact same word in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, to mean destroyed. And so he, because of this experience with God and his holiness, he feels like, what am I going to do? God is so holy, and I'm not. And he sees himself in light of who God is, and he fears death or fears being destroyed. Why? Because verse 5 goes on, and it tells us he's a man of unclean lips, and he says this. And that word is used mostly, of course, in Leviticus, the word unclean. But it means morally impure or ethically impure or religiously impure. He knew that unclean lips come from an unclean heart. Jesus later on would tell us in Matthew 12, verse 34, that it's what comes out of the heart, not necessarily the lips or the mouth or what we put in, but the lips can definitely display a broken heart. And so that had to be what was on Isaiah's mind. I'm a man of unclean lips, but it was pointing to his heart. And so in verse 5, it goes on, and he says, here's why he's ruined. Woe is me. Number one, because of a man of unclean lips. So look at number two. And my eyes have seen the king. So not only did he recognize who he was in light of who God is, but he had seen the king. Isn't that interesting he used that word? Because King Uzziah had just died, and he was a good king. But nobody would have ever thought, I'm a man of unclean lips because they'd been in the presence of Uzziah. And yet here he is in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord Almighty. And because he has unclean lips and because his eyes have seen the King, he says, woe is me. I am, I'm, I'm ruined. So it's one thing to be unclean and sinful, but when you stand in the presence of a holy God, you're exposed and revealed for who you really are. 
So in verse 5, he says, the king, the Lord of armies. You see, even in the morning of Uzziah's death, like I said, he realizes God is this true king. And so he's the Lord of armies or hosts. And let's look at that for just a second, the idea of the Lord of hosts. And I'm just going to share a couple of other places in the scripture where host is used. Host is used of angels in Psalm 103. It says there's a host of heavenly angels. You remember that? Um, and then a creation of people in 1 Samuel 111. It talks about the host, the Lord of hosts is the creator. Later on um, in Isaiah 40, he talks about the host of the heavenlies, the host of the stars. And so that's um, another place. And then also the whole earth. When he talks about in Amos 4 being the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts, he is the one who made the earth. And here's what I surmise from that. He commanded and they were created. He's the great commander of the stars, the, the skies, the seas, the angels, of people, of all things. And so when it says, Lord God Almighty, it's just saying, you've made everything. You've commanded them into being and you are over all things, God. Amen. And so in verse 6, what happens next? One of the seraphim, one of the fiery ones, flies to him with a hot coal or maybe a stone, touches his mouth. And here's what's interesting. That's probably, we don't know for sure, but it's probably from the altar of incense. Of course, this is a vision. It's in the, the, the heavenly tabernacle or temple, okay? And so in this place, it's um, probably from the altar of incense. And that's where the blood was sprinkled right in front of the Holy of Holies, right? For atonement. Which is where that would take place, atonement. For sin. And so what does that mean? Well, in verse seven, it says um, the seraphim tells him after touching him, your iniquity has been removed. And so, you know, I, I mean, I've looked at the scripture and read things for years and years and years. And honestly, until this week, I never really looked at the difference between iniquity and sin. They just kind of seem like the same thing to me. I said, well, you know what? I want to find out this week. Is there a difference between iniquity and sin? Because right here in verse 7, he says, your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes in writers in the, in, in the Bible will use words kind of um, over and over to bring out emphasis. But in this case, here's some things that I understand. The Hebrew um, literally translated the word um, iniquity is the word evil. Okay, it's evel in, in the Hebrew. And so the iniquity comes really from bending and twisting God's word to make it kind of be what we want it to be. That's what evil is. When you're kind of twisting and saying, no, God, you don't really know what you're talking about. I'm going to believe what I want to. I'm going to think what I want to. I'm going to harbor in my heart whatever I want to. And so in essence, that's what iniquity is. It's bondage, and that's where sins come from. And so David, you remember in in Psalm 66, he didn't want to regard iniquity in his heart. And so the whole idea here is when you have iniquity, you're holding on to that thought and the feeling of sin and you're indulging in it. Later on, Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians 2.12, says we delight in wickedness. And so here's the whole point. Iniquity is that thing inside of us where we're just kind of holding on to bending what God says and saying, yeah, that's not really true. I want to indulge in what I want to indulge in. And that's iniquity. That's just that festering things that stays in there and brings bondage out in us. And so he says that's removed. In verse 7, 
Also in this vision, Isaiah's sin is atoned for. And so you know that word means to be covered or sprinkled by the blood there on the altar in heaven. And so sin means missing the mark and breaking God's law. But he says, because your lips have been touched, this is blotted out. It's covered. Now, we know that Paul later in Romans would write and say that in chapter 3, verse 25, that those things God kind of looked over or looked past, they were covered until Christ's death could actually satisfy that wrath of, wrath of God against the sin. Now, it's covered. And so he's saying, listen, I'm cleansing you from this. But until Jesus was crucified, it couldn't really be taken away. Have you ever tried to cleanse or cover up your sin? Anybody? Right? Usually we lie, right? I mean, that's my go-to. You know, it's kind of like, no, I didn't do that. You know, or you know, somebody else. Or, well, here's why I did that. Or, you know, I try to cover it up or blame somebody else or, you know, whatever the case is there. Well, this past uh, couple weeks ago, um, I was using some of that spray foam stuff. I don't know if you've ever used this. Now, almost every chemical known to man says use gloves when working with this. Um, but um, let me just give you a heads up. The next time if you ever use the spray foam, use gloves. I found that out, and I would just thought, hey, I'm just going to spray a couple little things here that I need to do, and I'll, I'll be good. Well, it started, you know, pulling out. It was going to fall on my floor, so I reached up with a couple fingers and, and touched it, and I went immediately into um, the kitchen, and I was going to clean this up. And so what was I going to use? Water, right? Because that's what you clean stuff with. And so I was like, okay, we're going to get this clean. And what I didn't realize is that water is actually the bonding agent for that stuff, so all I'm doing is kind of attaching it and affixing it to my fingers worse than it already was. Okay. And so then I realized that and I'm like, okay, I got some Gojo under the sink. So I probably should have used that first. So I break out the Gojo and I'm using it. It's getting stickier and stickier. And I'm like, now what do I do? So my go-to for sticky things is peanut butter, right? I mean, if you're going to get something off that's sticky, you use peanut butter. So I grab some peanut butter and I'm just sitting here and I, I mean, I'm like 10 minutes into this thing and I'm thinking, this is not working. This is not going well. I'm not covering this up. I'm not getting this cleansed. I don't know what's going on here. So I use the peanut butter and it kind of worked a little bit but not so much so finally i rinsed it again with some water it hardened some more and i thought okay this is i don't know what to do so what did i do i went to youtube you know and i'm kind of like okay what do i do here so the, the it was like okay use acetone no no, no okay I'm, i like my kidneys we're not doing that um, there were several other, you know, mint. one was sandpaper. It was like, you know, just get some sandpaper. And just like, like, okay. But as I started peeling it off, my skin was coming off. Okay. And so here's what I found out. Basically, there's a couple things. Gojo is one of the best things that, can, that you can use. But basically with that, here's what you have to do. You have to wait for your skin to die and for that all to come off. That's kind of how it works. But listen, guys, let me just point out something to you. We try to cover up our sin and we try to do all types of things to cover it up. And let me just explain something to you. When you are a sinful person, the only thing that makes a difference is dying to yourself. You can't cover it up. Jesus' sacrifice can take that away from you. But in doing that, like Stephen pointed out earlier, the picture of dying and being buried in baptism and coming up. If you don't do that, you can do nothing about your sin. And so, well, in this case, Isaiah saw and the seraphim pointed out that this was atoned for. It was covered, obviously, until the uh, sacrifice of Christ. But we're on the other side of the cross. 
And so when something takes place in our lives, the only thing that we can do is go to him and say, I see my sinfulness in light of who you are as a holy God and a righteous God. And because of your word, I've got to die to myself. I can't continue to hold on to this iniquity that has to be relinquished. And God, I have to give this to you, but I've got to die to myself. See, Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin. Remember that? I don't know what it was like to, you know, sow leaves together. That does not sound like fun at all, especially on a windy day in, um, in New Mexico. But God had to kill animals to cover them. It says in chapter 3 of Genesis, which is a foreshadowing, right, of things to come in terms of sacrifice and showing that blood and death were necessary to forgive and cleanse that sin. And could you imagine wearing a skin of an animal that was killed on your behalf, realizing that that's how you were covered? So that that was what was covering you up was that sacrifice? Can you imagine the reality of that sin of feeling that fur or whatever on your body and thinking this animal gave its life for me. And yet on this side of the cross, the lamb of God was the sacrifice who was slain from the foundation of the earth for you and for me to take our sins. Isaiah saw God for who he really was. It's the only way that we can understand our condition is understanding that God saves us through his sacrifice. And when we come face to face with a holy God and a righteous God and we realize who we are in light of who he is, there's nothing else that we can do. I mean, he said, I'm ruined. I'm going to be destroyed. There's nothing that I can do. And yet he responded. And thankfully, God is the one who took the initiative And the seraphim came and cleansed him. And so what did Isaiah do? Because here's his response. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, not the seraphim, the voice of the Lord saying or asking, who should I send and who will go for us? You see, God calls us to spread his glory. We don't get to keep it to ourselves. When we have an encounter with the living God, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and we see who we are in light of that, and we respond and we allow him to change our lives, that means that now we get to go out and be a part of God spreading his glory throughout the earth. Now, his glory is already there. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't see it. They don't understand when they're flying in an airplane that God was the creator of the host of the heavenlies, the stars of people, of all those things. And we get the unique privilege of being able to speak for him and allow people to hear who he is as Lord God Almighty. So in verse 8, the Lord speaks, who should I send? God is the sender. It's his mission. It's not ours. And so as a church, we can't just say, hey, we're on our mission or we're going to figure out what our mission is. The mission's already been established. It's his mission. It's the missio Dei, the mission of God. We just simply say, God, how can we join you and be a part of what you're wanting to do in this part of West Albuquerque or the rest of the world? Verse 8, who will go for us? Some commentators say that's the Godhead, but obviously another thing they did in the Old Testament was uh, God would be plural, showing that God is grand and greater and almighty. And so, you know, it could be either one. 
But the reality and the truth is that God is the great sender and he asks who will go for us. See, in the next few verses, it becomes apparent why the seraph touched his lips. God was wanting a person who would speak of his glory and share the message of salvation and spread his glory to the nations. And so God's glory fills the earth. But as I said, Romans 1 shows that people have completely missed it. And so we get to point out that way that people can really see who God is. And we get to speak about his glory by sharing of our own sinfulness and brokenness and what he's done for us. So in closing, here's what I want to do. There's several places in the whole of scripture where it talks about God's glory. And when you really look at it, it's amazing to see the picture that that's really what God's all about is his glory. And so in Ephesians 1, God chose people for his glory. In Isaiah 43, God created us for his glory. In Isaiah 49, God called Israel as a nation for his glory. That's why he sent Isaiah to them because they were missing it. In Psalm 106, he rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. In Exodus 14, he defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea for his glory. In 2 Samuel 7.23, he gave Israel victory in Canaan. Why? For his glory. And then in Ezekiel 36, he restored Israel from the exile, which happened after this passage with um, Isaiah, for his glory. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus sought the glory of his father in everything that he did. Is that not the example for us? And then in Isaiah 43, God forgives our sin. Why? For the sake of his glory. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.31, we are to live our lives, everything, for his glory. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. And then in Revelation 21, in the new heaven and new earth, God's glory even replaces the sun as the thing that gives light to all creation. And so God calls us to spread his glory. And here's how we're going to respond as Danny comes up. We should respond to God's glory with repentance and service. Lord of armies, Lord almighty, Lord of hosts, the great commander. If we're going to respond to him as the great commander, that means that we say, you're my commander. What do I do? Where do I go? Send me, Lord. I'm ready to go. Let's pray. God, as we come in here this morning.